The preaching of God's Word is at Luke chapter 20 and verses 45 through 47. Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. Hear then the Word of God. Then in the audience of all the people, He said unto His disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Our Lord, of course, is that true prophet to whom His people must hearken. And this includes those words of great encouragement unto life everlasting as Christ is often full in dispensing the way of salvation and pardon and peace with God, the way of repentance and grace. But likewise, it demands we listen to more difficult things and searching things as well. You'll notice here that Christ is speaking particularly, as it is in verse 45, unto His disciples. Now this is instructive because a disciple is one who has publicly attached himself to the guidance and leadership and instruction of another. And so he's speaking to those who have publicly said, we follow Christ. We pursue Him. We're willing to trust His promises. We're willing to submit to His commandments. We're willing to follow after and obey Him. This is what it means to be a disciple and a disciple of Christ. And yet it's to his disciples that he's warning, saying, take heed to this, look to this, verse 46, beware. And he uses those who were prominent in his day as officers in the Old Testament church, the scribes. And he doesn't at all detract from their office or their dignity in that office, but he does indeed open to the understanding the errors and the sins that were prominently displayed in that day. And doing so, he's helping his disciples to make some connection. The scribes were members of the visible church. This is an important feature of this passage. And as you saw in Matthew 23, Christ tells his disciples, listen to the scribes and Pharisees who sit In Moses' seat, they've been given authority to expound God's Word. And as they do so, that Word is to be received and honored. And yet, he says, you're to likewise avoid their works. And this is what he points out here. He doesn't say avoid their right interpretation of the Scriptures, their expounding and proclaiming of the same. He says, mind their works and depart from them. Now, this is telling because assumes that there is the potential and the tendency within even disciples of Christ to look upon the grandeur of such men and to desire what they have. Not just to have, as Paul says elsewhere, to desire the office of a bishop or minister, which such a desire is a good thing, but rather they desire this that Christ condemns. They desire to be applauded among men for their piety. 
They have a tendency to desire to live upon this earth with great uh, uh, improvement to their outward estate. And they desire to be received by men and acknowledged with the highest honors that society may place upon them. Now, it may not be that any of us have it to the extent that the scribes had it, just as it may not have been the case among his present disciples. And yet there's the tendency for it. There's the sinful remain of the old man which feeds off of the things that the scribes fed upon and became fattened by. Christ seeing this, He warns us that we then would see the emptiness of such a false way of religion and then be turned to pursue the truth which He's already set down and sets down again after this. Notice the text presents to us the scribes. And these, as we saw in Matthew 23, are often joined with the Pharisees. Now the scribes were an office in the church, not unlike minister. You saw that, of course, in Matthew 23. And this is at least hearkening back to the book of Ezra. So you can turn to Ezra, and you can see this very thing noted when it's mentioning Ezra himself. So you look at Ezra and chapter 7, and what do we find said of Ezra? That this Ezra, verse 6 of Ezra 7, went up from Babylon... And he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And so on. Notice verse 10 of that chapter. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And again, in verse 11, it speaks of Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes of Israel. And likewise, you see the same in verse 12 when Ezra the priest, a scribe in the law of the the God of heaven, gives perfect peace and at such a time. The point is this. It's not the scribe's office. It's not the scribe's authority. It's not the scribe's public teaching that is the problem. But rather, as Christ indicates, it's their unmortified Sin, that is desiring the things of the world under the guise, under the veneer, under the appearance of piety and religion. And it's when we see that, that we can start to see connections to our own day. But sometimes we think, you know, hypocrisy as this most flamboyant thing of, you know, uh, uh, unwarranted offices and unwarranted things and so on. But here is an office in the church that has been penetrated by unconverted men. And though they keep up an appearance of piety and religion, yet their actions display a love to this world, though refined. The scribes were, even in Jesus' day, tremendously disciplined and studied men. They put to shame those who are called academics in our day. The hours they spent meditating upon God's Word. Such things as we hear the monks of later monasteries replicating when in copying the Scriptures, they would count the, uh, the letters of each line. They would measure certain lines to make sure the length was the same, both horizontally and vertically. And if it was amiss, they would burn the copy as 
corrupted. They were careful with the Word of God. They meditated upon the same. They gave themselves to it to teach and so on. They were disciplined men. They taught the Scriptures as we see Christ commending such teaching in Matthew 23. And yet, in Jesus' day, they had set up themselves as their own end. There's a reason for this. When people have such an office, it's right for the people who do not have that office, who are in the church, to look to them for guidance and help. And there is necessarily an honor that is to be given to them. And this is nothing that the New Testament hides from. In fact, it's explicitly commended and commanded. So you see it in Hebrews 13. You see it in Thessalonians as well, where Paul is testifying that we're to obey them that have the rule over us. We're to honor them who watch over our souls and so on. So there's a propriety in looking with honor and respect to those who hold office in the church because of their work that they're doing and because they're gifts of Christ to the church. But there is then a subtle thing that creeps in to an unconverted man in the office of the church, which likewise can happen to unconverted people in the congregation. It can also happen to converted people who have failed to watch over their hearts and to assess their desires. Hypocrisy is not sin in general. Sometimes you hear people say, well, we're all hypocrites. It's not true. Not everyone's a hypocrite. Not every Christian is a hypocrite. There may be seeds of hypocrisy. There may be tendencies to it. But hypocrisy is the blossom of self-love under the guise of religion. So it's true, of course, that there are times when it is, among even Christians, we may say things that are pious, and yet our hearts are a bit distant from it, and even times when our hearts are far from it. And there's a sense in which that's a generalization of hypocrisy. But that's not what is meant when Christ is speaking of the hypocrites of the scribes and Pharisees. These were studied men who had set their heart upon the applause of men and whose piety displayed before men was for their own sake. So is any pastor perfect? No. Is any elder or deacon perfect? No. Do they have sinful desires? Yes, just as every Christian does. But that's not what makes them hypocrites. What makes someone a hypocrite is the practice of religion for the furtherance of their selfish ambition and their applause among men. That's what the scribes largely considered had become, as well as the Pharisees. And it's this which Christ is saying we need to watch out for. We need to watch out for the use of religion to further our applause among others. Not just officers in the church, though surely that. Likewise, all disciples. So consider them three things. Firstly, what it is we're to beware of. Secondly, the reason we're to beware. And thirdly, how it is we're to beware. What, the reason or why, and then how. So what is it we're to be aware of? Notice that Christ says, beware. This word means look to or be toward. Be attentive toward. The idea is turn your body to face it 
and be pros, you know, uh, uh, positioned toward attending upon what I'm calling you to look at. So in other words, you know, parents know this. They're telling their children something, whether young or older, and their children are looking out the window, they're flipping through a book, they're you know, messing around with some toy, and what do the parents say? The parent says, turn to me and look at me. Why is that? Well, I need your attention. Because in our world that loves to think there's such a thing as multitasking, the fact is, the simple fact is, there's not. We are a simple people who need attention on a simple thing. And so we know that. And when something's important, we behave that way. Give your attention to me. right? Look at me. We see it in weddings, for instance, among the most solemn things that can be said, where a man vows before God to take a woman, and a woman thus vows before God to take the man. There is a focus upon those things. There's a stillness, because they're giving their attention to it. That's what Christ is saying. Beware. Well, beware of what? He doesn't just say of the scribes, though he starts there. He goes on to assess what it is of the scribes that they're to watch for. Notice, one thing they're to beware of is the wrong purpose of piety. You see that in verse 47, when it says that for a show, they make long prayers. Christ uses this in various ways in other portions of the Gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount, of course, he addresses this. Likewise, and the point is not the long prayers. It's not, notice he doesn't say that, you know, uh, they make long prayers. But it's the purpose of the long prayers. For a show. Elsewhere Christ says, for to be seen of men. To be considered by men as pious, right? So parents, if you're in family worship, there is of course the need to be thoughtful toward your children if they're younger and whatever and not overextend. And yet, it's not that you should never be long in your prayers. When you're with other Christians in private and you say, let's pray, you shouldn't say, well, we've only got 10 seconds because long prayers are bad. That's not it. We have a long prayer in public worship as the church has for generations. The problem is not the long prayer. The problem is the purpose of the long prayer that was lifted up by the scribes. It was for a show, for an appearance. It was to gain the attention of men. And this is really fundamental to the nature of hypocrisy. Christ is opening that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in many ways, chapter 6 in particular, when he talks about almsgivings and prayer and fasting, these different activities of piety. And he says, here's the fundamental fault of the hypocrites. They do it all in order to be seen of men. And what does Christ say? He says they have their reward. What's their reward? They're seen of men, and they're considered by men as pious. This is why they love the greetings, as we'll see in a moment. It's because they're using piety. They're using the activity, the display of godliness, in order for men to say, those men are extremely godly. Brethren, it doesn't take long for us to realize that this is nothing peculiar to an officer in the church, though officers will have more opportunity for it because of the nature of public office. Ministers and elders and deacons, of course, 
but it's something that each individual will have a temptation more or less unto. And it particularly happens when it is that there's some ability in the activity. So you can think of it this way. There are fundamental disciplines that are necessary for the Christian life. The intake of God's Word, prayer, public worship, these are things which in our day are so minimal that it's easy to become standing out as those who are superior to others. So think of it. In your homes, you have family worship morning and evening. How common is that in the world? It's a decimal point, if we could think of it, of a decimal point, considering not just the world, but even the professed church. And it's easy then, when we are in conversation with others, to lean into our activity and to be desired to be seen, well, there's a pious family. There's a pious individual. We can think of it with Bible reading. You know, it's study after study displays this in the past 50 years, that even among Protestants, you know, deliberate, regular Bible reading and meditation are quite low. Um, if we particularly focus on meditation, we can even find it uh, lower. But that regular intake, and then as the Lord's working in your lives, you start to read God's Word, you take it in, what happens? Well, that's a secret thing. But it's easy then in conversation at the discovery of others to sort of drop into their uh, hearing. Well, you know, I've read three chapters today, and well, I've read through the whole Bible, you know, 20 times and so on, and these kinds of things. It's not the speaking of that that's the problem. It's the purpose for it. There may need to be the modeling to others, right? You know, so a family comes to you, a young Christian family, you meet at work or uh, hanging out, and they come over and they're saying, well, you know, how do we do family worship? And you're able to say, well, this is how we do it. You know, first thing in the morning, we get up, we, you know, have breakfast or whatever, and we sit down at the dinner table, we have our Bible out, and we read that chapter or those sections, and we talk, we have a few questions, we sing a psalm and pray, and we're done. Well, how long does it take? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? And then at night, before bedtime, we do the same. And it's helpful to model for that, because as creatures who are in the flesh, we need to see and have models before us, which is necessary in society. But it's easy for those moments to then become some display for our own selfish satisfaction. That they would think, wow, that is a godly woman. That is a godly man. Well, this is what the scribes had. They were devoted outwardly to God's Word. They were studious, diligent, and so on. But they turned that, as well as their prayers, unto a wrong purpose. To make a show, an appearance, a display unto men. Christ says they receive their reward. But notice, we're to beware not only of their wrong purpose of piety, but their unmortified desire for this world. You see it as well in verse 47, when it says of the scribes, they devour widows' houses. Now, in the Greek, as in the English, there could be a connection between these two things. They're devouring the widows' houses, connected with a show of long prayers. Some have some evidence historically to think that similar to certain ways of false churches today, 
the scribes were basically uh, charging for prayers on behalf of others. That's possible, but even if that's not the case, the fundamental fact stands that they would take of those who were broken and receive of their estates for their living upon the things of this world. We see this in all manner of hypocrisy. When you study the Reformation, whether continental Europe or the British Isles, you see this among the false teachers of those days. They loved to live upon the wealth of those who were under them. And so one of the constant reproofs from the Reformers to false teachers was, you are fattened priests. You don't preach, you don't pastor, you don't shepherd, you don't deny yourselves, but you take in the money of your parish, or if a bishop of multiple parishes, never doing any work for the cause of Christ, and you live as kings and princes of this world. But brethren, we know of examples, of course, of so-called megachurches whose names on their campuses, plural, are named after the own pastor of the you know, grand uh, uh, gathering. And this is something that is common in our day. Under the guise of religion, there is a tendency for the unmortified desire of wealth and the benefits of it to cause them to be diligent in the display of religion. This is what one part of the scribes' hypocrisy was. The scribes were often paired with the Pharisees. Not every scribe was a Pharisee. Not every Pharisee was a scribe. A Pharisee was, as it were, a party in the church. A scribe was an office in the church. And so it'd be like, you know, some ministers are reformed. Other ministers are Lutheran. Other ministers are Baptist. Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptists are not offices in the church. They're, as it were, different denominations, or if we could say it, parties within the church. That said, Pharisees come from a term meaning separated. And the scribes, many of whom were Pharisees, were by their outward actions behaving in such a way as if they were removed from the concerns of this world. And yet, in practice, they were living rich and, as we would say, high on the hog of the lowly in the church. Is it not the case that we can see that in all manner of hypocrisy publicly seen today? We hear of you know, so-called ministers who justify the necessity of having private jets for their ministry. What in the world is that, well, you know, it's justified by one such false teacher day. I'm persuaded that if Paul uh, lived in our day, he would have possessed a private jet. And you're struggling to make sense of how far gone such a thought is when Paul never gives any indication of such desires, but was a man of real self-denial and lived upon the gifts of the church with necessity and with littleness, often living in a impoverished state himself and dispensing of the gifts to others. Likewise, and even more superior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Those things display that though they are outwardly religious, their hearts are still festering with unmortified desire for the world. This is why Christ says, you're like a, a cup or a platter that on the outside is glorious. It's beautiful. 
But you look within, and it's full of iniquity. It's all of disgust. Well, this is something we have to be mindful of. It's easier to put on the outward display while still living for the things of this world as the scribes often did. We need to be aware of that. Thirdly, we need to be aware of their veiled lust for recognition. It's noted by one who himself was formerly Jewish as far as religion and then converted in the 1800s that in a study of the scribes and Pharisees, there would be hours of prayer, which uh, were familiar in that day, and wherever they were, they would stop in the middle of a busy intersection. They would stop and say their prayers. It said that if they were, their foot was in the stirrup and the hour of prayer came, they would have to remove their foot and whatever else was going, they were to stop and pray. It was a public display. This is what Christ is saying. They love the busy places to display all of their works. And what happens of that? This is what happens. Men say, that is a man of prayer. That is a man of diligence. And so what happens? Notice verse 46. They desire to walk in long robes. This false gravitas. This display of elegance and dignity. They love greetings in the markets. Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi! And the highest seats in the synagogue. No, no, don't sit here. Sit there. And the chief rooms at feasts. Notice this. It's not that Christ condemns their long robes. It's not that Christ condemns their greetings in the markets. And it's not that Christ condemns their highest seats in the synagogues and chief rooms at feasts. What He condemns is their love for it, their desire for it, their seeking of it. This is the problem of hypocrisy. It takes the, as it were, the fruit and outflow of right honor to those in office or those who are uh, um, uh, making progress in the way of godliness, and they shift from desiring the thing of godliness to the rewards among men of godliness. That's what I want. I want the best provision to myself. I want the applause of men. Is it no wonder that such men that we acknowledge to be great lights in the history of the church were often riddled with massive affliction? Think of the names of Luther, Calvin, of Spurgeon, of Augustine, of Athanasius, of these great luminaries that God worked in and through, and they're often brought low and afflicted like Paul. So Paul is afflicted by this thorn in his flesh and he says to God, Oh God, I ask you would remove it from me. And yet Christ or God says, My grace is sufficient for thee. God was humbling him. And by the providence of the pinch of pain, he was made, as it were, to cast off this false hope that the scribes had. We need to beware of it. But secondly, why? What is the reason to beware of it. After all, it's right for men to honor officers in the church. It's right for widows upon their death to give uh, something of their inheritance in support of the ministry of the Word of God. And it's right to pray and to, even as Christ says, let our works be done in the sight of men that they may see our good works and glorify God. Why is it then that we need to beware? Well, again, it's not that we need to beware of those outward things. We need to be aware of the inward motive that rests in those outward things for the sake of personal gain 
and prominence. Why so? Well, one thing to note is this. We're to beware of it because of God's perspective. This is a constant point in Christ's teaching on Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. He's saying to his disciples, in fact, just look at this. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, you'll notice when Christ begins his Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, he starts with this description of those who are blessed. And notice what he says Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and so on. All of these are aspects of grace in the heart. Sincerity of grace. He doesn't say, blessed are those who walk around in long robes. Blessed are those who are highly esteemed of men. Blessed are those who in the sight of others are highly considered and reckoned. But rather, in many ways, blessed are those who are despised by the world and yet who are sincere in the things of Christ. Notice as well in verse 16 of this chapter, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Notice the scribes, the hypocrites, were doing these things to be seen of men, to gather attention to themselves. But Christ's disciples are to do these things publicly in order to give glory to God in heaven. Not just with their lips, but with their desires. We sang this morning from Psalm 27, One thing I have the Lord desired and will seek to obtain, that all days of my life I may within God's house remain. My desire is nothing to do with myself, but is focused upon God through Jesus Christ. And you can see this as he develops it in Matthew chapter 6. What is Christ's perspective? Notice at verse 1, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. He doesn't say don't do your alms before men. He says don't do them to be seen of them. Why? Because you'll have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Notice the perspective here. Verse 3, When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, And thy Father which seeth in secret Himself shall reward thee openly. Likewise with prayer. They love the synagogue standing there, the corners. Verse 5, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What is it? That they may be seen of men. But you, when you pray, go in secret. Your Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And likewise with fasting. Verse 16, Be not as the hypocrites, of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. They have the reward, but thou when thou fastest, notice verse 18, appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret. What's the point? God, Christ is telling us this. Our religious devotions, our acts of godliness, are to be, as it were, to an audience of one. To God Only. This doesn't detract from doing things publicly that need to be publicly done. And so, for instance, before a meal, you know, we call upon a man to pray in the presence of other members of the congregation. The man's not to say, well, you know, I have to go now to my secret place, shut the door. I'll go pray down there so no one hears me. Then I'll come back and we can meet. No, that's not the case. 
when the man's called upon to pray, his whole mind and soul is now focused upon God. He, as it were, has the people in one sense vanish from his concern. He's not worried about the trips of speech, though he works on them perhaps. He's not worried about the, the beauty of his words, though perhaps he learns to put off some other expressions. Those things are not the main focus. Rather, as prayer is the lifting up of our desires to God, he stands before God in the name of Christ, by Christ's mediation, and lifts his desire. And he then is contented by knowing that as he sought God by grace through faith in Christ, God is well pleased to receive the same. This is the point. God's perspective. That's why we're to beware of it. We aren't concerned with the applause of men. Though certainly we're concerned about lifting up any stumbling block other than Christ Jesus, we are not concerned about the men's uh, the, uh, the applause of men around us. But also with God's perspective, what is this but telling us that God sees, He searches, He knows what's in the heart. And so it's not for us to guess what's in the heart of men. It's not for us to assume what's going on. We are content to trust the Lord that when a man prays in public, when a woman shares with another of her Bible reading, that we're not to say, well, well, that must be hypocrisy. No, we know that God sees it. God knows it. And this is sufficient for us. But notice what Christ focuses upon. It's not just His perspective, which is necessary for the following statement. It's the activity that follows. Verse 47, the same shall receive greater damnation. Much in the church today don't know what to do with this expression, greater damnation, because we've been taught to think only as to the essential difference between heaven and hell. And we're right to understand that all in heaven shall be perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God for all eternity. And likewise, that in hell, all there shall be fully consumed with the unending wrath and agony and misery for their sins. But that's sort of where our thoughts stop. And we fail to come to terms with the fact that there are degrees of uh, uh, reward in heaven and there are degrees of judgment in hell. In no way will there be anyone in heaven who says, I've missed out. You know, oh, I'm unsatisfied. The smallest one in heaven will be entirely and fully blessed by the riches of of God in Christ Jesus. But likewise should we understand this. No one in hell will ever think, well, at least I don't have it as bad as that one. Now that said, we need to realize that here Christ confirms that those who make use of religion for earthly gain, those who make use of religion for personal uh, ability in this life, they will be among those who experience the greatest torment in hell. So Christ says this elsewhere, you know, woe unto you, and He lists various cities He's been to, Bethsaida, Chorazin, for I say unto you, it shall be, notice this language, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in that day. Now consider that for a moment. In our country, we're right to be appalled at the mutilation of children's flesh, 
We're right to be appalled at the open sodomy of our day. We're right to be appalled at the capitulation of many in the church saying, well, let's use their terms and all these other things and not worry about it. No, we're not going to compromise God's language. This is God's word. But we ought to see something here. As appalling as those things are, as utterly reprehensible to our souls as those are, God says this, more appalling to God is religious hypocrisy. More appalling to God are those who hear the gospel and refuse it. Those two things throughout the scriptures are again and again and again identified as most repugnant to God. Now consider this for a moment. Lord willing, you're free from those openly scandalous sins our world delights and celebrates today. But of which are you more likely to become guilty? Are you more likely to become guilty of those things which are so contrary to nature, which your consciences, by the repeated teaching of God's Word, condemn again and again? Or are you more likely to lean into hypocrisy and into presuming upon the gospel preached? And then when you realize that, you realize something. This is why Christ is saying to his disciples, beware of religious hypocrisy. Because it's often the case, though there are examples to the contrary, we fully acknowledge that, it's often the case that those who are raised in the church are kept back from the more scandalous sins that are celebrated in our world today. It's not always the case. But what is more frequently the sin with those who are raised in the church is presuming upon the gospel preached and cultivating an outward display of religion for the applause of parents, pastor, and church members. And what Christ is saying is that will receive greater judgment than what fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah and all of those who walk in their ways. And then we see for a moment, we need our consciences retuned and reoriented. Does this mean we shouldn't think about other sins that we've mentioned already as abhorrent? Absolutely not. It's similar to what Christ says to the scribes and Pharisees. These ought ye to have done, not leaving the others undone. We should not flag or weaken or lessen our conscience's awareness of the repugnancy of unnatural things and sins of our day. But what we need to do is so meditate upon God's Word that our consideration of religious hypocrisy is upped in our awareness that we would detest that for our own soul's good, lest we come under this greater judgment of which Christ mentions. Thus the reason. But lastly, thirdly, how is it that we're to become those who are watchful Remember the word beware has a sense of uh, being toward, looking at, not with attraction. Just like this, children, think of this for a moment. You know, if there were a venomous snake that were seen in your house, so it's not a garter snake, it's not a king snake, whatever it might be, it's rather a confirmed copperhead or a rattlesnake, and you find it in your house, you're not going to sit back and say, well, you know, let's get to that later, right? 
you're going to give your attention to it. Some of you are going to scream, run out the building, and say, someone go in there. Others of you are going to be all into it, ready to go at it, and you know, find it out. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to be content to say, well, I know there's danger here, but I'm just going to sort of back off and let it play out. Right? Some of us are going to get on the phone and say, listen, I've got this problem in my house. Others are going to make sure the kids get out, but we keep our eyes on the place and we're making sure to our best ability that we keep it contained. This is what Christ is saying. To be aware of this is not to say, yep, I got it, and then go on our way and not worry about it. But rather, we're to be attentive, looking toward it for the sake of protecting ourselves. You can think of this, you know, mothers, if you were cornered with your children and on the other opposite end of the room was some cruel creature, what would you do? You would put your children behind you and you would keep your eyes upon that enemy, that you know, beast, whatever it might be. You're watching it and you're protecting your children. That's the posture Christ says that we're to have toward hypocrisy. We're to be putting those we love behind us, watching and saying no one's going toward it, no one's taking a step toward it, and we need to be watchful against it. How do we do that? Well, One thing is by taking in what Christ says about what the scribes are doing. We need to teach ourselves and our children that the acts of piety and the attendant, you know, thanksgiving that are given by men, these are not the things that we do to receive thanksgiving. It's not wrong for us to say, Sister, you know, I, I remember in my, in my trial that you were praying for me. Thank you for praying for me. We don't say, never thank me, right? We give glory to God and we say, praise God that He's been pleased to use that. We are careful not to let that seed, which is so ready to be received in our hearts, take root. And so we're watchful against public applause or even private applause for religious action. So if we're helpful to somebody, we're sitting down with them, helping them with their Bible reading, and they tell us, you know, thank you for this, or someone else, third hand, comes and says, you know, so-and-so is saying how you helped, and that's a great thing that you're doing. We don't say, well, you know, never mention it. But we're mindful that our hearts, left unchecked by God's grace, would latch onto that and like a leech, feed upon all of that venom that we would desire to fill ourselves up with a puffed up notion of our ability. So we have to be watchful against it. Moreover, we need to be conscious and condemning not the actions, but the wrong ends. This is what Christ was doing regularly. So woe unto you, and he's going through these things. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is condemning religious hypocrisy frequently again and again and again. And we need to do that. Parents, as you teach your children to pray, you need to be explicit in teaching them that we do this unto God. We're doing this to seek God. We're not doing this that people would say, wow. If they do say, wow, we give glory to God and praise Him. So we condemn these wrong ends. We have to examine our own motives. So we shouldn't hesitate to pray. We shouldn't hesitate to read God's Word. We shouldn't hesitate to come publicly and sing in the worship of the Lord. But we should indeed ensure that our affections and desires and our motives are ordered the right way. And what is that? It's to seek the Lord. That's what we sang earlier, right? 
One thing I have the Lord desired and will seek to obtain. What? Well, he doesn't go on to say that all men in my days may bless me. No. It's that I may dwell with God and delight in His beauty. That's why we do these things. That's why we presume. Is that our motive today? Is it just to be seen of men? Is it simply because, well, you know, people will know I'm a churchgoer? Or is it because I desire God through Christ to worship Him, to receive blessing? And likewise, we are to beware by practicing true godliness. What is true godliness? Well, it is that desire of soul whereby we seek God in accordance to His appointed means. We seek God. We're desiring Him. And this is what God provides for us. What a blessed thing it is that true godliness is something that is beautiful. We know what it is to look upon false beauty, whether you know among men and women, with all of their decorum and so on, or whether upon other earthly things. But we also know what it is to see true beauty. And where there's true beauty, there's wonder. You know, as children, we love sweet candy and snacks. And even as adults, we might enjoy them to an extent. But we start to realize there's something that's better. There's food that actually has, you know, this whole spectrum of flavors and, you know, uh, different tastes and likewise textures. And we start to delight in those things, which children would never find satisfying. That's not because children are smarter. It's because the adult has matured. And so it is, there's something truly beautiful, truly satisfying, even among earthly things that pass. True piety, though, is that which never passes. And notice what a privilege true godliness is, that in 2 Peter 1, we're told that through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. That's the word piety. Through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. One thing we can say is this. True godliness is by God's grace, through the knowledge of Christ, and embracing the promises He gives us unto obedience. It's easy to have a form of religion. We can divorce prayer from Christ. We can divorce Bible reading from Christ. We can divorce public worship from Christ. And men will be none the wiser. You understand that? Men will see churchgoers, people who hold family worship, people who read the Bible, people who sing the Psalms, and they'll be none the wiser. But God sees it. And moreover, we actually lose out on the life and the beauty of true piety through Christ. Some of us know of those whose marriages have proven to be a sham. And so on the outside, they looked all okay. You see this in public scandals all the time. They're the Hollywood couple. And then something breaks and you start to see all of the brokenness that was in that relationship. How different the sham is from the genuine thing where there's a marriage that is truly vibrant and vital, where a husband loves his wife and the wife loving the husband submits, and there's a position and a relationship of grace flourishing. When you see that, something in you says, 
That is beautiful. It doesn't make the magazines. It doesn't come up on all of the social media. When people put that forth, you know something's wrong. But when you see it in the flesh and in truth, you say, that's beautiful. The same is true about true piety. Where one loves Christ and is not attentive to either the praises and flattery or the reproofs and the ways in which the world attacks, but is single-eyed toward Christ, there is beauty. And believer, you know that in your own experience. Delighting in God through Christ unto godliness. And so, brethren, as we close, let us not fear the activity of godliness. Let us not fear even the public displays of religion. But let us be sure that we pursue these things out of the fellowship that is within the fellowship, issuing forth the fruit of that fellowship with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And if this is to be done, we must then approach our Bible reading, our psalm singing, our public worship, our family worship, our secret meditation, our prayers, our services, with this first step. We draw near to God through Christ, consciously by faith, and we seek His glory alone. Whatever men, whatever women, whatever others will do, whatever praise they may heap on, whatever ways they may denigrate from this cause, my desire is Christ. And when we have that as our desire, will we not be free from the love of greetings in the markets, the highest seats in the synagogues, the chief rooms at feasts, devouring widows' houses, living upon others, for the sake of our earthly benefit and for a mere pretense and show to make long prayers. And if free from that because of grace through Christ, what a happy thing that will be free from that greater damnation as well. Brethren, how shall you beware of hypocrisy? It's by sincerity of faith and hope and love in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?